I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Online podcast. Our real body is not just what's inside the skin, but our whole total external environment. Because if we don't experience ourselves that way, we mistreat our environment. We treat it as an enemy. We try to beat it into submission. And if we do that, comes disaster. Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and in today's beautiful episode, I got to have my second recorded conversation with Mr. Thomas Myers. He is a, uh, I call him a mentor from afar for a long time now, and just greatly value his opinion, his work, his perspectives. Um, he is one of the main innovators, spearhead folks of really spreading this message of integration within the body to the mainstream. The sum of the whole is greater than the parts, la da 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 da, uh, and really important stuff. And hopefully, you guys, I'm sure you guys are already familiar with his work, but uh, refamiliarize yourself if you haven't checked it out for a bit. Um, in this conversation, we get into all sorts of pretty radical meta-related rabbit holes in relation to how this body is associated with the mind and the emotional self, uh, potential happenings with the human race in the future if we don't clean up our act, and um, just a, a whole a whole assortment of really super interesting subjects. So I hope you guys enjoy. And so the work in the practice is to find the unfamiliar in the familiar. But the other way to go about this, as we were just saying, is to go out and embrace something that you never embraced before, and it almost doesn't matter what it is. Playing Monopoly with your kids, fiddlywinks, hanging upside down from a tree, any, anything new that you subject your body to and require it to learn a new skill opens up the possibility to new emotions, new things, and <laughs> I'm an American, I'm addicted to the new, so I'm always looking for the new in my own body. Thank you so much for tuning into the, the Align Therapy website, aligntherapy.com. On there, you will find hundreds of free videos, self-care and functional movement. You will find the self-care kit, hollow foam roller, screw on lids, a couple different myofascial release balls and band, and a door anchor so you can adjust the height of that band. and. Start empowering yourself with your own self-care practice. Every moment is an opportunity to get better in your body and your mind with the proper education and some handy dandy tools. Uh, you can be a pretty pretty integrated human structure on the regular. Um, most of us end up occupying a high percentage of our day with dysfunctional compromised positions and then we have a small 45 minute to an hour and a half workout session and think that that's gonna save us. It's not good enough. We need to integrate functionality into all aspects of our life. Thank you very much. Fall is coming up. <clears throat> And uh, I got, I got, I got stricken with some, with some flu, son of a gun. Um, granted, it was after wandering around a, uh, a lake, dancing my butt off till, till the wee hours of the night and uh, experimenting with public nudity <laughs> at a, uh, a music festival in, in California called Symbiosis. Really, really fun. I would highly recommend people do something to shake yourself up a little bit. Take yourself out of that standard habituation of your lifestyle and kind of step outside and really look at the patterns that is your day-to-day -day and to, to be able to see what serves you and what doesn't. Sometimes stepping away gives you a vantage point of really understanding what to leave and what to take out. Thank you so much for reviews on iTunes. So greatly appreciated. We had some wonderful reviews and um, it just helps the algorithms and blah, blah, blah. And it just genuinely makes me feel good. So thank you for that. And utilize the Amazon portal on the blog and podcast page on the right sidebar. Anytime you purchase some random crap on Amazon, I get 7% of that towards the podcast. And uh, that's just awesome. Helps me to be able to travel around places and interview people and explore and all that. So really, really appreciate it. 
Uh, last thing before we get into the shizzle is um, fall is here, officially here in Oregon. And I am personally gonna take the opportunity of being in this cold temperature to embrace it and see about, you know, silly, wacky things like uh, you do Tumo meditation or Wim Hof is, is doing a great job of spreading all this stuff, like generating heat or warmth from the inside as opposed to always being dependent on changing our peripheral environment via turning the heat switch up, but recognizing that our bodies love fluctuation, they love adaptation, and when we pull ourselves out of that fluctuation and allow ourselves to actually adapt to our environment, it seems to be that things like depression and dis-ease end up following suit with that. So I would recommend folks um, lean into the stress that is coldness and embrace it, enjoy it. And uh, really, uh, another thing is the the sun goes down earlier, and you see travel cultures throughout you know the world that experience um, you know fall and winter are going to end up sleeping more time. And I think that maybe there's something to that, that maybe a percentage of the year is it's okay to rest a little bit. You don't always need to be six-pack abs, super sharp fight mode. It's all right to have some cocoa and make some porridge and read a book and take a nap. That's a, that's a, that's a part of being strong as well. I think we're too dependent on the hardness and uh, we miss out on all that yin business. Anywho, you'll probably think I'm crazy now, but that's all right. Here we go. Back to the show, Mr. Thomas Myers. Align Podcast. I have to see my pants after that, actually. I'm surprised you're wearing pants. <laughs> face up. What are you doing? Getting all formal. How's things? Okay, so what are we doing and how long are we doing it for? Is it possible to do for an hour or is that ridiculous? Uh, it's probably ridiculous, but let's try. All right, cool, sweet. I promise uh, to, you, you can pull the parachute anytime, just hang up. And I'm like, well, I guess he didn't like it. <laughs> he wasn't having a good time. <laughs> the big thing that I wanted to, well, there's a handful of things I want to talk about, but yep. things that, that's been intriguing me the most in the last, I don't, I don't know how long, for, for a bit, is the connections between our emotional selves and our ability to move through that and our physical body. And um, just all of those correlates and that you can't really, my illusion is that you can't hold a physical form without that being an emotional representation. And so that's a, a large, you know, rabbit hole of things to get into. But uh, yeah, do you have any, any opinion? Do you agree? What do you, <laughs> what do you think about that? I think that we are on the edge of a 21st century monism where we understand that the expression of a human being is a single thing. And we've been hoodwinked by Descartes for 400 years, almost 600 years now, of about thinking about mind-body dualism, that the mind is one thing and the body is another. That was a deal that was made with the Catholic Church in the 1600s in order that we could understand the body as a machine and the soul as something else. And uh, we're not going to do that yeah. anymore. It's, yeah. It is one expression, spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally. It's a... Uh, whether you believe a creator endowed it with a soul and that then that embodied, that doesn't matter. The body is still a perfect expression of that thing, whatever it is. Whether it's an accident of evolution or design of God, doesn't really matter much. It is one single expression, not two expressions in existing in different dimensions. Yeah. Something I've heard you mention previously was in relation to uh, patterns passed on from from parents, you know, and mimicking your parents. And so I heard you said that I was curious about is in relation to like, it started off as perhaps a deep seated emotional thing for the father or the mother. And now all of a sudden, the son or daughter is carrying that pattern, and it may not hold the same value that it did for them. My curiosity is, is that even possible? If you carry a certain physical position, is it possible to say, no, this is just physical? Things have more of an emotional component or not. Not everything has an emotional component. You know, you, you, everything has an emotional component, but the emotional component could be prominent or not so prominent depending on the bit. You know, uh, everybody, if I lie you down on the floor and have you turn over in the way of a baby, it would take a few minutes to set up. You will turn to your preferred side if I don't tell you which side to turn to. 
that will not have to do with your handedness. It will not have to do with your dominant eye. It will not have to do with your dominant leg. It will have to do with an accident of where your crib was placed. So I don't regard that preference as very often having a high emotional component. It has a high neuromotor component. Might be associated with an emotional component. Collapsing the chest, bringing the heart back, which is so common in the Western world today, is an emotional. It's highly coordinated with the emotional expression. So everything, you know, you can imagine somebody on the sound mixing machine, some things have a bigger uh, component of that and some not so big. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm curious for you, what's been your, like, your movement practice? What's that been looking like? Uh, I regard my movement practice as I regard my shoes. I change them early and often. Cool. Um, so uh, I've had a long life and a lucky life, so I've been exposed to uh, classical Yang-style Tai Chi. I'm not putting that forward over any other Tai Chi, but um, I don't do Tai Chi regularly. I do Tai Chi when I need it, when I need to ground, when I need to coordinate myself in that kind of down, martial artsy, get-centered kind of way. Um, I'll use that practice. I uh, run, I sail, I make love. These are all my movement practices, yeah? Awesome, yeah. Awesome. And you have a background with, with acting, right? That's, you were... Well, for a short time, yeah. <laughs> I was a bad actor and a bad doctor, so I ended up where I am, kind of half an actor, half a doctor. Right, yeah. And that's something, so I'm presently practicing for a chorus line, which is like, a, it's, it was a Broadway show, it's here in, in Bend yeah, yeah. now. And, uh, you know, that I find that to be one of the most helpful things that I've, I've explored with movement practice is, is acting and dance, and especially integrating the two. Theater, you know, I find to be such a valuable tool you know, we get so wrapped up in linear, dogmatic movement practices, something like theater, we don't realize that we are practicing movement, you know, but we're taking on these other roles as opposed to taking on like the role of a bicep curl, for example. You know, do you feel like that was something that you were able to get structural value out of when you were practicing acting? Does that make sense? Oh, that was my first entryway into the practice of the body. I grew up in a New England family where, generally speaking, the body is something that's used to hold up the New York Times, and the emotions are things that other people have. Um, so for me, getting into this whole body work thing, it was the emotional part that was so revelatory to me. All the stuff I do about fascia and anatomy and all of that are because I want to understand the medium in which those emotions are held. And I don't accept the fact that the emotions are held in some other medium that's just the realm of psychology or just the realm of chemistry or just the realm of neurology and that we can't explore that through the rest of the body. We absolutely can explore that through the movement of the rest of the body. Indeed, it's the best way to explore it because you're talking about my belief, this is just my belief, the emotions are held in the whole vagal system and the autonomic system. That's what's designed for emotion of either the old tube when you were back in evolution when we were a worm. We either withdrew from danger from the front, we withdrew from danger from behind, from the side. Um, these things are written into our neuromotor emotional, our vasomotor system, our emotional motor system from the time that we were first animals, first linear animals. Right. So with walking around town, you know, in modernity, is there specific physical emotional patterns that you witness the most with people? Well, I just mentioned uh, two of them, which are the people who overshorten the front, uh, which is known as the startle response. If you see it in a baby, if you uh, clap your hands behind a baby's head or suddenly drop them, those are the two things that babies are really um, sort of naturally frightened of they will do the startle response where they pull their head down into the body and shorten the front part of the body, which, as we just said, takes the heart back. Yeah. It's protective. Yeah. It's totally understandable. It's not wrong. It's just that if an animal goes into this, they hold it for the 30 seconds or the 30 minutes that they're actually in danger, and then they let go. But we're so attuned to our own internal world. We have so many more neurological connections that create our internal image of the world that we can go into this position and hold it for the next 20 or 30 years, right. Right. Ex 
experiencing that there's danger outside, but be, we, we don't become to consciously experience that. That's our unconscious experience. It's part of the belief system out of which we operate. Um, so by going in and changing it, you can go in and change the idea that the person has. You can uh, go through many channels. The channel that we in the body, that we in what I call spatial medicine go through, is the channel of the body and the body's expression. You just don't see people going around saying, I'm so depressed. Right. If you're really going to be get any joy out of being depressed, as, as uh, Charles Schultz said in Peanuts, you have to adopt the posture that goes with being depressed. The posture that goes with being depressed is uh, being stuck on the exhale, being stuck in this startle response. Um, so I see the variations of that in bodybuilders and front, you know, accountants, everybody from one end of the spectrum to the other. You can see that pattern of shortening between the pubic bone and the mastoid process. Right. The other one that you right. see very commonly is the pattern of flight. That was a pattern of protect. The second is the pattern of flight, and that's the hyperextension through the low back, where the pelvis is shoved in front of the feet. Um, and that's a highly, highly common pattern in the West. We even have a phrase for it, which is you've got to be on your toes. Yeah. Um, the way yeah. you get on your toes is to launch forward. It's a pattern of flight, of um, defensive mode. That's a very common psychomotor emotional pattern that people take on, and then they add their own individuality to it. Um, so those are common patterns. Rotations are very com common patterns. People going from the side are common, but usually those are not so emotional as they are either developmental or, of course, all the accidents that happen to us in our life. You know, if you've got T-bone from the driver's side, you're going to have one side that folds in. It's uh, uh, again, that may have an emotional component, or it may have mostly a physical component. Yeah, the, th yeah. the thing that really uh, I'm really curious about is is people's programming. You know, and as you grow up, I think we 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 all become programmed with whatever the software program it may be, depending upon the location, your environment. You know, but getting to the point of recognizing that your identity, Tom Myers or Aaron Alexander or whatever, isn't necessarily all of you. There is more than that. And you are able to kind of navigate, you know, a little bit deeper than just the level of what you think that you are. And that's a structural which, process. Which takes us right back to where you were talking about the acting class, which is not, again, the only way to get there. Yeah. But it is such a good way to get there because you need something new. If you are totally committed, and I'm, I'm all for total commitment to one form of movement, like yoga or Pilates or personal training or weightlifting or uh, whatever it is that you're doing, that gives you the vertical in your gyroscope. Yeah. But then you have to explore out to all the avenues around. That's the equator of your gyroscope that actually keeps you going, is that you have to move out into new things. So acting for you is a new thing. Um, rowing, which is something that I do because I live on the water, um, and I'll do it as a morning exercise, it's uh, a very familiar movement to me. And so the work in the practice is to find the unfamiliar in the familiar. Hmm. But the other way to go about this, as we were just saying, is to go out and embrace something that you've never embraced before, and it almost doesn't matter what it is. Playing Monopoly with your kids, tiddlywinks, hanging upside down from a tree, any, anything new that you subject your body to and require it to learn a new skill opens up the possibility to new emotions, new things, and <laughs> I'm an American. I'm addicted to the new, so I'm always looking for the new in my own body. Well, so the thing that I was going to ask, and something that's, that's challenged me in the realm, where sometimes, you know, with like fascia and Rolfe or structural integration, goes off into a little bit more of like an ethereal, harder-to-grab realm, is consciousness in the tissue, you know, and, or consciousness in the fascia. And it's, it's something that's like, I agree but I haven't really fully embodied that, like, yes, I feel my thoughts in my everything. Do you have any? No, no, no. What do you... Yeah, you're... you're when you, one says consciousness, mm. we are not only dealing with the tip of the iceberg that is above the water, we are dealing with the 60% or whatever the hell it is of the iceberg that's under the water, right? The unconscious, but it's not unconscious, it's subconscious. So... I don't want to go off into too esoteric a realm here, and I'm not trying to make a bid for fascia over everything else. I think we have three body-wide systems, and that they all participate in consciousness. 
you have a body-wide nervous system. There's no part of your body that isn't covered by, the, you know, that isn't a nervous system. If you've been to body worlds or you've seen the art of Alex Gray, you've seen the nervous system abstracted out of the body. It's the same as your body. If we were to make your nervous system, everything but your nervous system invisible, we'd see the shape of you. It would be filmy. It would be very dense here in the face and in your hands and in your genitals, but it would be very kind of dim in your buttocks and the backs of your legs and your back. So you've probably seen the homunculus that shows how much of your uh, body is, uh, how much of your brain is taken up by each part of, of your body. So that nervous system would be thickly represented in some parts in your body and thinly represented in some parts of your body, but no part of your body would not have a bit of the nervous system. In my theory, that constitutes our perception of time is in our nervous system. But hang on with me for just a minute. We'll come back to that. The second system that you have going on in your body that is your whole body. And again, if you've been to Body World, you've seen it because they inject latex into the circulatory system and you see the blood man. The, so if you put blood and lymph and cerebral spinal fluid and oocyte fluid, you would have uh, the whole body represented in fluid. In my theory, that fluid system centered in your heart, pushed through your liver and your kidneys and uh, all the adrenal glands, these are the ones that uh, record our emotions, that actually is our emotions. It's not a representation of our emotions, it's where our emotions are stored is in the chemistry of that. I invite you to think of how many emotional experiences that you have are fluid experiences. The bottom drops out of your stomach. You get so emotional that you need to urinate immediately. Your face flushes with embarrassment or drains with fear. When you have a change of emotion, that's a change of the fluids in your body. And so the um, emotional self is in that circulatory system. The fascial system is the third system, which goes all over the body. Um, again, more thick in some places, like your Achilles tendon or your iliotibial band, and thinner in other places like the breast or the kidney, um, very pancreas, very, very loose arrangement of fascia uh, as opposed to thick. So it's different in different places. But in my strange theory of consciousness, your belief systems are written in your fascia. Your very, very deepest um, responses to the world are written into the fascial system. Now, are you directly conscious of your fascia? No, only through your nervous system because you exist in time. So that's your nervous system ticking off the minutes. But the ground from which you think is determined by the emotions in your circulatory system, which express themselves as neuropeptides and hormones that are flushed from the circulatory system through the nervous system. You have the same kind of feedback going on with the fascial system. And, of course, the nervous system is talking to the fascial system through the muscles. Um, we keep thinking about it in terms of biceps, but it's not. It's a play of individual neuromotor units across your body. Even now, I'm watching you sitting on that stool. You're constantly in motion on that stool. It's not requiring that your serratus anterior contract to do that. It's little bits and pieces of your serratus anterior are flashing back and forth all the time. Little bits and pieces of your rhomboids are flashing back and forth all the time. That's the nervous system talking to the fascial system. When you sprain an ankle or do other things, then the fascial system talks back to the nervous system. Actually, the fascial system talks back to the nervous system all the time. Um, but we're getting out into the weeds there. That's no, okay. So your, your experienced consciousness is the part of the iceberg that's above the water, and that's mostly in your minute-to-minute -minute nervous system, which is designed to examine the world and see whether it's safe or not. Go inside and see whether the information you're getting matches with the information that you've built up over the last X number of years of living and compare those two constantly. Whenever there's something different, then you're, you feel your system come up. All I have to do is raise my voice like that to go out of context a little bit and it jacks your system up. It's so amazing. It's so reflexive. Did you do that with your nervous system? Yes, you did that with your nervous system. You flared, but you also changed the fluid system. Can you feel that in your stomach or your chest now? It's, um, yeah, the whole system is responding. And to sort of try to pull the emotions away, you know, as Freud did, and God knows I admire Freud for what he did, but to try to abstract that, put it on a couch and take it away from the body just seems to me like a silly 
hundred-year mistake that we've made in our thinking that will shortly come back to a monism where all of these systems, all of the cells together participate in this thing that we call Aaron. Um, and the wonder of it is not that uh, it can change, but that it stays the same, <laughs> that we're able to maintain ourselves from day to day given all the things that are changing from moment to moment. Yeah. It's the it's the the disassociation that ends up manifesting is a product of us becoming consumed by the literature, becoming consumed by the dissection, you know, or the dissection literature translated breaking into pieces and getting away from actually being in the experience that is Tom or is Aaron. You know, it's like we can become so analytical or so frontal with our thinking that it's almost like there's these two dualistic Descartes worlds happening. There's the analytical me. And then there's the actual experience. And I think in our, in our culture, we're kind of, as a team, we're kind of abandoning the experience. <laughs> um, I'm pre- I, don't, I don't think we're too much in danger of abandoning the experience altogether, but I understand um, I work a lot with physiotherapists and physiotherapists are now with a phrase called evidence-based practice, right. uh, meaning that if you're going to work in this field, you really honestly ought to do what has been demonstrated to be good practice by good research. Totally understandable, totally part of the medical system wanting to be responsible. I got it. But the trouble is that interoperator reliability on any of these methods, I don't care whether you're talking about surgery or um, physiotherapy or any of the new agey kinds of methods or any of the movement trainings that you want to make, interoperator reliability is really bad. We all go to these trainings. Oh, I've been with a training with Ida Rolf, so I am a Rolfer. But you know what? The way I interpret that is completely different from the way other people have interpreted that. It gets, uh, it is, I propose that it's much better if we think of the depth of our practice. I've been practicing now for 40 years and I'm just getting good. (laughs) I really have to say that if you haven't been practicing five years, if you think you're good, you're um, maintaining self-delusion for as long as you can. But uh, if you're honest with yourself, somewhere around five to seven years, you will run out the limits of however you were trained and you will need to get more training. And I have continually gotten myself more training. It's harder and harder as I get older and have more responsibilities, but um, continually being trained in new stuff so that I'm piling that into my intra-operator reliability, which means my consistency with myself gets better and better and better and better the longer that I'm in practice, the more things I have under my belt, the more clients I have under my belt. I have an intra-operator reliability, which I would call practice-based evidence. So I have evidence of what has worked for me in my practice. I can convey that to you as best I can, but you're going to have to take that up figure out which ones work for you and practice those things for X number of years. Really, I think that five years is, a, is, a, is an apprenticeship um, at any task. Um, Twelve years, you get to call yourself a member of the guild. And uh, I don't know where mastery came. I, I, <laughs> I'm not calling myself a master, but I think mastery of my craft uh, came to me when I had been doing it about 22 years. Uh, it was just a feeling inhabiting it in a way that I have not inhabited it before. It's mine, even if I don't work for a year or two, it comes, it's all right back in my hands because it's so stuck in me yeah. in a good way, yeah. not in the bad way that we were talking about, about the emotional things because we all get good habits stuck in ourselves too. You know, I've had this habit of playing guitar stuck in me for, uh, well, since I was 13. So that's 53 years. And I am, uh, very glad that that habit has stuck with me. It's not that all habits are bad, that we want to get rid of them. Um, so I'm, I'm happy with my analytical and, what would you call it, linear memory mind, um, just as long as it doesn't try to shut out my intuitive right. intra-operator mind, too. Yeah. Yeah, with, you know, with working with clients or patients or whatever person calls them, I, I think one of the most important tools that we can have as practitioners would be empathy, you know, and pattern recognition and the ability to really step into someone's shoes and have the awareness of how to walk them to wherever it is they're trying to walk to, you know, and the way that they're, you know, ideally could walk. And I wonder with, with you, a lot of, a lot of my, my practice that I've gotten that's helped me with clients the most isn't necessarily specific trainings as much as it's just life experiences. Uh, is there some parts of your 
physical, emotional self practice that have helped you grow as a practitioner that are mentionable? Oh, God, because I had no emotional range whatsoever when I came into this. It was part of the reason that I was a bad actor when I was in, in uh, college. Right. And um, this whole field of body work and just being a therapist was my first five years were lessons in empathy. Yeah. I'm very lucky that I had very good people on my case um, pushing me forward during that time from Ida Rolf and Moshe Feldenkrais and Emily Conrad and um, I'm sorry that's my phone going off can you hear it? Um, I don't actually hear it it's okay they should they could get along in the in the talk if they got something good to say so despite having um, really good teachers along the way um, who kind of forced me into my emotional self you have to do it yourself and then it has to be lived out in your life primarily for me it's been in my relationship uh, that process of a dyad uh, being part of a couple where nobody has more than 50% of the vote mm. so everybody has to work it out that's been a real process of empathy for me that's been very very helpful of course I've learned much more from my uh, clients than I have from my teachers. I um, I learn the most from my interactions with my clients and going deeply into the empathy with them, but staying objective at the same time. It's a it's part of the art. It's part of the craft. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. A very fulfilling one. Yeah. Is it? Um, do you have any experience with like talk therapies or psychedelic? ceremonies or things like that that have been supportive in that in that path uh, yeah I grew up in the 60s um, and have not gone down the more recent trails of ayahuasca or uh, things I, I just don't find that those things do as much for me now at this age that mm. they did when I was younger mm. um, so the um, those those experiences um, have been very important, but they were really more part of my past than uh, something I would currently use. And in terms of talk therapies, I, of course, uh, Gestalt was the first one that I was introduced to and um, has been a very living and uh, right-brained intuitive one for me when, of course, any of these things rests again. It's uh, interoperator reliability is so bad. So you can't say that a Gestalt therapist is good just because they're a Gestalt therapist. You can't say a neurosurgeon good just because they're a neurosurgeon. You can't say that somebody is good just because they came through the training. Um, the what makes somebody good is not whether they joined a certain club, but whether they got the depth inside that club and that's a matter of talent and it's a matter of experience and it's a matter of luck probably. Uh, I feel very lucky in my own life. Um, and the Rogerian therapies and the uh, um, psychoanalysis I have not had that much experience with. I have had much more experience with the body-centered ones because I prefer things that join the, the body and the story and the feelings together. One of the things I heard you mention one time that I thought was was fantastic was was that manual therapists and I think most any any therapist or even personal trainer are um, they're political workers and environmentalists at the same time because by bringing people more in tune to themselves, then all of a sudden you start to give a damn about things like the woods behind your house, you know, or the, you know just the environment in general or the political situation, how we're treating. The earth, which is you know a representation of us as individuals, I think. You know, I, you kind of is that is that accurate? This um, follows a, a, the journey of my own life, is what I was saying. My first awakenings into this were during the Vietnam War, um, when there was a universal draft. I was threatened with being called up. Lots of people were being called up for a war that we, that made no sense to us, and um, so that political awakening in uh, between 63 and 67 came along with civil rights, uh, Martin Luther King and the March on Washington, which I participated in. Um, and it seemed to me obvious as a young man that uh, changing the political system was the way to go. And um, in my own evolution, 
that took me into theater as a, as a form of expression. And then because I wasn't very good at theater and because I didn't like Harvard and I dropped out of it. And then I went to study with Buckminster Fuller, which was the other side, sciencey side, the design side, the technological, can we technocrat our way out of this? Can we um, provide for everybody on a technical means because political means is obviously just a cops and robbers game and um, not very effective. And uh, so I worked in the environmental field for uh, quite a while in an aquaculture company here in Maine and a um, Tom's of Maine, you might have heard of Tom's toothpaste, um, worked there. But um, then a few years later, I got into, I, I kind of cut the cords from my family and my upbringing and said, all right, who are you? And uh, everything was loose uh, in Cal in America in the 1970s and what was loose rolled towards uh, it was tipped so everything that was loose rolled towards California so I ended up rolling towards California and discovered meditation and martial arts and Gishal um, therapy and Tai Chi and just lots of things I just took a whole smorgasbord of bits I ended up personally being a offer that was what fit with me but I could have ended up with selling shoes I don't know um, that's not the important you know the it of it is not important. Um, the importance is that uh, I began to see that if people's bodies, if people weren't at home in their bodies, they could make decisions that were divorced from their feelings, that were divorced from um, the ground of being um, in the body. And that we, when we got so abstracted, so much up in our head that we were capable, I was capable of making really hurtful, really emotionally bad um, decisions. And uh, that the way to heal the body politic, which would be the way to heal the environmental damage that we're doing, was through uh, personally getting to as many people as we can. And I, I kind of abandoned that personal practice, um, not my own personal practice, but I mean having a private practice of people a while ago in order to teach because I feel that I'm reaching more people that way. Um, but uh, you know, everybody's doing what they can <laughs> on those three on those three wheels. I have to say the political one doesn't look very good at this particular time, but uh, neither does the environmental. So uh, I do think people are really waking up. I'm very pleased with how well the anatomy trains has been received in general, how well that these uh, yoga just in the 1970s, you really had to go someplace to find yoga in California. And uh, now in the, in the 2000s, you, you find it on every street corner and every fitness club. So um, a lot of things have really moved very quickly. Um, the recognition of gender rights has moved very quickly. Um, the, there, there are many things that are moving in a positive direction very quickly right now, and, and I put my hope in those. Yeah, there's. Yeah. you could have a percept, the perspective that life is a process of remembering. You know, I think one of the things that, that you've mentioned before was uh, the relation to forgetting parts of your body, and that essentially gives way for the potential of disease to manifest. You know, but if you're, if you're really embodying your whole self and occupying all those nooks and crannies inside of you, it's hard for things to fester. Uh, is that something that's, what do you think about that? Well, that's, yeah, that is the very ground on which I tread um, in terms of if you have a complete body image, you will make complete decisions. They may not always be the right decisions. You've got limited knowledge and limited perception of the world around you, but you're going to make the best decisions if you are maximally aware. Yeah. And um, the process of forgetting and going to sleep is a fairly constant one because we are very habitual creatures. And uh, so to step outside one's habit patterns um, and find something new that tickles you uh, is, is just so important. Yeah. How does one... How does one because I feel like most of us, myself included, there's parts of ourselves that may be kind of darker spaces or parts that we've forgotten, but we don't necessarily know how to remember them in the first place. Yes, is there's, that's, thank you. You make a very good point. And there's only really two ways to do that. One is to take a, a tool um, and go after parts of yourself that you haven't explored. Um, you, you can find, everybody can find places in their hamstrings that they haven't explored. Everybody can find places in their back muscles that they haven't explored. So the use of a ball uh, in that kind of way. I love uh, particularly the um, meditative movement practice of continuum. And you can um, really expand your movement through somebody guiding you into these things. But uh, 
really the way that is to have somebody else look at you, whether that's a personal trainer or an athletic coach or a body worker, an Alexander teacher, whatever it is, that somebody else looks at you from the outside and shows you what you haven't, re what you have forgotten, what you haven't remembered, um, or takes you to some place that you never occupied yet, that got forgotten from the beginning and never got activated. And the more you get these place activated, I'm not saying it's a comfortable process. There are often deep emotions that are stored in the, in the places that we forgot. Um, there are often, there's pain and, and um, a kind of birthing that has to happen um, uh -huh. through, through a tight place in order to get the fellow feeling in that part of the body so that it's equal with the rest. Um, and then it becomes a practice of your daily movement, whatever your daily movement is. Can I, while I'm sitting here fairly motionless because of the camera in front of me, can I keep myself alive and listen to you while um, I'm just sitting in one place? That idea of keeping the movement going within myself is something that I can constantly practice on a minute-by-minute Zen-like basis. Um, and, and fail again and again and again because I get lost in my work or uh, my annoyance or whatever comes along to take me away. Yeah, it's the, yeah. there's the this this I think disassociation is inherent in the model that most of us in modernity are raised in, and I'm curious how we can get to the root cause of that with you know children, for example. Yeah, you know, I feel like by being forced to sit in a desk and, you know, wearing high heeled shoes and blah, 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 fill in all these different blanks, being forced to remember dates of people's birthdays and such, instead of getting to know what the heck this human experience is about. You know, is there some kind of like, what would you, if you could design school systems or education systems for, for children, like, where would you go with that? I would design a school system where we poured um, much more money than we are into physical skills. Mm. So music is a physical skill. Art is a physical skill. Drama, as we've already mentioned, is a physical skill. Um, sports, obviously, they get the money already um, because it generates money, but the other ones don't because it doesn't so much. And um, those, the... Uh, the, the purpose of an education is to give child an access to learn bunches of new skills one after the other and not to go way down far into them. Not when you're a child. You're going on from one thing to the next. You know, I thought my daughter was going to be a math genius when she was three because she just down all this math stuff. But then, like, a couple months later, she'd given that up and she was off into Binny the Kangaroo or something. And uh, that was the big thing. And, and I learned, okay, this is just going to, She's looking in fits and starts, and then she will come back to these things when it's necessary. Um, and so I just tried to give her as many new skills, physical skills, in front of her as possible. And I think this is not happening in the schools. This is not happening to our children. We are not. We are aware of IQ, and we're getting to be aware of EQ, of emotional intelligence, and we just haven't even done round one on physical intelligence. There's stuff about team sports, that's good, but we haven't really put out the topology of what is personal training doing. You know as well as I do that in all these, these professions, you've got people who are dedicated to whatever they were trained in, which is great, but it has one set of precepts and one set of names, and I go around, I mean, I've been very privileged to give to personal trainers and athletic coaches and osteopaths and physiotherapists. They have the same word for different things and the different words for the same thing, and we haven't gotten the whole language together of how movement works. And so we haven't got a good movement education at all. We force kids to sit at a desk, except in very specialized schools, which are to be commended. But in our public school system, we force kids to sit at desks for long hours, and then we sort of set them loose in recess, which even recess is being <laughs> recessed in many of the schools. I'm talking about America now, but um, I just think physical skills are, are going down uh, all over the place. At the other end, you have these kids, wonderful, um, who are doing stuff with snowboards and at the Olympics and skateboards and all the rest of the stuff, which is just beautifully coordinated. And that should be celebrated. That should be brought into the educational system so that uh, I was a klutz as a kid. Um, and I could have benefited from some basic physical education and have discovered really 
felt like a klutz up until I was 50 and don't feel like a klutz anymore. I sort of took hold of myself at 50 and found that things were really changing. But I've always had a lot of kinesthetic sense here. That was not developed at all in my um, school. We weren't exposed to crafts. Um, you know, every, every kid should have a try at pottery. Maybe they don't have a good at it, but they would just have that feeling of the clay in the hands or um, not glass because that's 2300 degrees. But yeah, you know what I mean? It's, to come in contact with a lot of media, to come in contact with a lot of putting things together. Um, and schools make a valiant attempt to do it, but the, the funds aren't there and the research isn't there to actually build a kinesthetic curriculum. What is, what is kinesthetic literacy? We know what somebody needs to read to be literate in the law and to be literate in medicine. And so what does somebody need to move through to be literate in their body? And we're going to have to do that now because life doesn't demand movement of our children. In fact, our children are kind of under protective house arrest. They're going from one house to a school bus to the next place. They never really have that chance to expand that we associate with the childhood of, an, of a Norman Rockwell painting. It just really isn't happening very much anymore as much as we still have it in our school books. And uh, so we have to develop a curriculum for our urban children, and increasingly our children are urban, um, in function that we have to develop a curriculum for them that will give them the basic vocabulary of movement that they will need for living. And you know, stuff like animal flow is reaching for this, Pilates is reaching for this, yoga is reaching for this, the martial arts are reaching for this, but we haven't gotten to, we haven't just applied ourselves because not everything works for everybody, right? We've got lots of different bodies out there that need different stuff. And um, takes a while to build that into a curriculum that would work for a lot of people out there. Lost you for a second, but got you back. Okay. That wasn't too bad. <laughs> that was a nice riff, actually. <laughs> no, that was great. I, for uh, you, but it, it was a good put together for me. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, was, I had popcorn. I was, I was enjoying it. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, man. No, that's why you're here. Um, so as I, I was riding, I was riding my uh, actually I was driving my car the other day. And I, I noticed these two kids. One kid was on a BMX bike, and he had like a backwards hat on. He was like riding up the wall. There's like this little slanted wall thing. And he's doing all these freestyle movements. And then there was his buddy behind him that had like the helmet on. He's on a mountain bike, and he's driving in a straight line. You know, and it was like it was interesting to me to see that expression because you know the kid with the backwards hat is a little disobedient punk. You know, and I love that. You know, I think that's what we need a bit more of in our culture, in our society. We have so many linear rule followers. And I think it's like that would be fine if the inherent system, the infrastructure was, was sound. But I, I feel like there's a good chance that we are outsourcing ourselves to computers, you know, and we're trying to compete with computers. Computers do the linearity really well. You know, what we need to learn is creativity. You know, and that sure. all those things that computers don't like, what's, you feel me? So that's what I'm saying in terms of teaching kids physical skills is that anything that's repetitive can be done better by a machine and will be done better by a machine. I don't care who's standing up there politically. You can't talk about bringing those, those industrial jobs back to Michigan and uh, Ohio because we're, we're moving out of that age. It was a short burst of energy, the industrial age of making things and now machines will make things people will do other things. So we need to train our children not to be cogs in an industrial machine, but to be the creative part um, behind which the machines follow doing the genetic command repeat um, so that any repetitions or variations can be done by the machines. But uh, we should be teaching our kids non-repetitive movement. I'm not against teaching repetitive movement like a kata and tai chi or a, a set of exercises. I don't mean that, but uh, that they should, that that they always work in the same way is uh, deleterious. People often ask me, what shoe, shoe should I wear? What's the best shoe? And there is no best shoe because any shoe requires your foot to conform to it. So within a few hours, your foot has conformed to that shoe, no matter how good, bad, ugly the shoe is. So the best shoe is the shoe that you change. Uh, I change my shoes four times a day, even here in Maine. I can't go without shoes in the wintertime. It's, it's bleeding cold outside. But um, I change from boots, then I come inside, I change into something else, or I take my, my shoes off. I'm constantly changing what's on my feet so that my feet are constantly adapting. Because even living out in the country, I would have 
mostly in my car and in front of my computer and on flat surfaces like any urban person. Um, so I, I have to take the opportunity to have my feet meet different surfaces. It's what was required of feet for the last two, four million years, and uh, I think it's still required now. So that would be part of the vocabulary for me is keeping people's feet supple. Um, as, as, a, as a chief part, we forget because we put them in leather coffins all day. Yeah, yeah. The, um, one of the analogies that you've used before that I, I thought was great was the analogy of, um, I guess it'd be called the gestation process of of an egg. You know, and so the white portion is the part that that's where the cells to create the the, the chicken come from, and then it feeds off of the yolk and the protein, and the sugar from that has twenty one days. Can you kind of? I I like that a lot. Is it possible we could bring that to to here and talk about that a little bit? This came out of my um, work with Buckminster Fuller and just trying to think about why are we here, what are we doing here. Um, in four million years, six million years, something like that, a very short period of time, if we're talking big history now, a small group of apes, in fact, only 200,000 years ago, the genetic data now tells us, only 200,000 years ago, there were only a few humans. We were almost gone. We were a nearly extinct species. We know that because of the strands of the DNA that have come down through. There was an Eve 2,000 years ago. We know that race is no more than 60,000 years old. 60,000 years, that's nothing, even in human history, let alone terrestrial history. And here comes this little ape from somewhere in Africa, and suddenly it takes over the planet. We are the biggest geological force on this planet now. We're moving things around this planet greatly. And I don't know any other animal that has gotten off its planet to get to a nearby satellite, uh, to send uh, probes to a nearby planet uh, several hundred million uh, miles away. It is extraordinary uh, what this ape has done. So why are what are we doing here? If we look at the history of an egg, the, as you just um, alluded to, the, it's the white of the egg that forms the um, chicken. And the yolk of the egg forms the fuel for that process. So the white of the egg is protein. It's going to organize itself from undifferentiated protein into a baby chicken. To do that, it needs fuel. And so it takes in the fuel from the yolk through itself. There's a process of circulation. You've probably seen it on the BBC films. And that thing somehow comes up with a chicken. That's absolutely miraculous. But that chicken lives off the yolk and excretes pollution. There is pee and poop essentially created. There are um, excreta from this process of building all these proteins, and that stays inside the shell too. So we are in the Earth are like that. We're almost in a shell, <laughs> never mind these little satellites that we've sent out. All of us living on this planet are living within the egg of the Earth. And if we look at the yolk like that, we could say that the yolk is the oil. Or the wood. Every time I burn a fire in my uh, fireplace in the winter, I'm unwinding the sunlight that got wound up in that. And the most wound up sunlight is in the coal and the oil that we have under the earth. Well, everybody knew that was around. The oil has been around on the surface of the earth, especially in the Middle East, time immemorial. But it burned so smokily that nobody burned it. People burned wood. They burned oil because oils burned with less of a flame. And you know what burned the least? Whale oil with the least of smoke is whale oil. So the Victorians lit their houses with whale oil. And if you want me to get about something, it's that we killed the entire intelligent species with stories and poems and sagas written in their song. We killed them all off to light our houses in the 18th and 19th centuries. At the end of the 19th century, we killed all the bleeding whales, taken their fat off, put it in their houses, and uh, it, the price of oil went, uh, the price of whale oil went up so high that somebody found a way to refine regular oil that everybody knew was there, but they started pulling it out of the ground and refining it into gasoline because that burned with less smoke. Still toxic, still smoke, but we powered a whole industrial revolution on that. And in 100 years, we've used up maybe half of that two to three billion years worth of a savings account. In other words, we're like the chicken, we're pulling on the yolk and we're pulling that into ourselves and we're putting the excreta of it out into the egg, right? Now, question in the chicken is, does it become a real chicken or not? It becomes a chicken if it pecks its way out of that shell. 
and starts to eat of no eat grain whatever chickens start to eat and the analogy for us is we've used a, we we put our finger we put our umbilical cord into that yoke and we drew out all the oil and the coal very fast in about a hundred years we didn't use it very efficiently but we built ourselves to what we are to where we can throw stones at the moon and stuff like that wonderful us but we're also at the danger of poisoning ourselves so are we a dud egg or a live egg we're in that very couple of centuries right now where that whole story is going to one of the times in which that story is going to go this way that way um because we are either going to get out of our shell and start using the sun, the tide, the wind, the things that you don't use up by using them versus using things like nuclear, coal, oil, the things that you use up by using them. Our, our grandchildren are going to, your grandchildren are going to look at you and say, you burnt dinosaurs to go down, you just you and two tons of metal. And besides, why were you driving anyway? <laughs> why didn't you have a driverless car? Um, but anyway, that's, you know, the, the, I look back on the whalers and say, you killed an intelligent species to light your houses. The, our children are going to look back at these two centuries and say, you, well, this century in particular, the, from 1900 to 2000 and beyond, uh, you used up our whole store of oil in 100 years well, half of it anyway in 100 years, and we look to use the other half in the next 100 years um, if we keep going the way we're going. So we have to graduate. We have to get out of this shell of just being stuck and getting our profits, some people getting profits out of this incredible savings bank that the sun put in our planet. And uh, if, if we don't come out of that, then we are going to poison ourselves and everybody else on the planet, if we do get out of that, we have the chance of becoming a chick in the universe. We have a chance of actually spreading out in different places and doing very, very interesting things, I think. But it is that place, and I certainly value political work, and I value environmental work, uh, all to, to bring this process to a head. But I find the personal work has been the most valuable, and that I find that it combines all three. Everybody has their place. I've found mine in, in trying to bring people back to the, to the authentic feelings in their body. Yeah. Um, we're out of time. Is it possible to, to ask one more thing? You can say no. I won't be offended. Um, one more quick thing. We're quick, quick. Uh, if, so hypothetically, the human race does hatch and we do become a chicken and we start that, that, that progression. Is, do you have any sense of what that looks like um, from a physical perspective and a conscious perspective, because it, I feel like the physical needs to come along. Absolutely, the physical needs to come along. You're not going to like my answer. Um, at the number 10 billion, we usually get a change from a change in quantity, just putting more things on, to a change in quality. If you take 10 billion atoms, you get a macromolecule, which is like a protein capable of doing... Um, much more complex things than just the simple molecules. If you take 10 billion of those molecules together, you have something that is not just 10 billion of those molecules, but is functioning together as a cell. If you take 10 billion of those cells and you put them together, you have something that begins to function with a, what you could call a personality or a drive uh, inside of it. And we're now coming up to having 10 billion human beings on the earth. And I would imagine that something else is forming there. We talked about having a nervous system, a circulatory system, and the fibrous system as being the uh, operative bits of consciousness in our body. I would argue that the nucleus, the membrane, and the cytoplasm are parallel processes inside a cell. And then if I look outside of ourselves, I see the nervous system developing. We used to call it the postal system. We now call then we called it the telephone system, and now we call it the internet. It's getting just as nervous systems did in, in evolution, getting more complicated very rapidly. Um, if you look at the internet now and think of it as a nervous system, it's about at the nervous system of a sea anemone. So not very complicated yet, not capable of much consciousness yet. But I imagine that the thing that will grow out of us, we won't even be aware of. There will be a hyper being 
and we won't be any more aware of it than your blood cell is aware of that you're talking to Tom Myers right now. Um, you know, your blood cell's just going about its job. You'll just be going about its job. In fact, this thing may already be forming, and we uh, we don't know it or feel it. We feel it in the zeitgeist. We feel it in the spirit and the way of that humanity is moving. But uh, we are not going to be it ourselves. We are cogs in that machine as our cells are cogs in our machine as the molecules are cogs in that machine etc it's a it's a tiered set of structures awesome 2047 is coming ray kurtzwell yeah let me um how do people find you and and all that stuff Oh, that's great. If anybody wants to pursue this further, you can do so at www.anatomytrains.com. We have courses all over the world. So we have also .co.uk and .aus and .jp and whatever else uh, we've mustered so far. Um, but we do, do courses worldwide in this kind of body awareness. So anatomytrains.com. Thanks. Cool, man. Thank you so much. I so greatly value your work. It's been super influential in all of my practice. I spread it to everybody. And um, yeah, I reference you probably on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. So thanks. Appreciate it. Great. Well, that was out there. I hope that's what you wanted. That's what we're going for. <laughs> See you, right. So let us know when it's finished yeah. so that we can put it up on our network. I will do this. Cool. All right. Ciao. Take care. Bye. See you, man. Align Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I greatly appreciate your comments and your shares in iTunes. They determine the ranking and the visibility of the show, and they make me smile. So I look forward to reading those guys. Be sure to check out the website, aligntherapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can find my blog. You can find this podcast, more information about the topics and the, and the uh, guests that we've had on the show. You can find hundreds of absolutely free instructional videos on self-care, functional movement, how to get strong, how to get fast, how to get exactly what you want out of your body as well. Be sure to check out the self-care kit where it is as small enough to fit underneath the seat in your car. And it's like a physical therapist and a massage therapist all wrapped up into one package. I know you guys are going to love the website. I know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of it. And I look forward to hearing your comments. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening, and remember to join the movement by subscribing to the podcast. If the information has been helpful, please share and leave your comments in iTunes. Aaron personally reads each one, and it makes all the work worthwhile. Together, we will make a difference and continue to bring more powerful and inspiring messages to the world. Align Podcast.